we need to remember that we're stewards of this gift of children. So we start out this session by just a very brief reminder from Psalm 127.3, and that is that every child is a gift from God. Children are a gift from God when they are planned for and wanted. Children are a gift from God when they are not intended but then given to a couple. Are children a gift from God when they are conceived outside of wedlock? That's right. They are. Children are a gift from God. The child, the fruit of the womb is a reward, is what we're told throughout Scripture. Never, ever, ever, ever from Genesis to Revelation will you find a passage that shows children in a negative light. And God punished these people and gave them children. That's like not there at all. Okay, that's not there at all. Children are always presented in a positive light. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Psalm 127.3 says that. Children are a gift from the Lord. And that's something that's worth saying right from the get-go. Because lots of times you will deal with people who say, children are a gift from the Lord if. And then they'll fill in the blank. Children are a gift from the Lord if. And the list of circumstance. But Psalm 127.3 in the whole of Scripture never presents children as a positive in a conditional sense. They're only good if. They're only good if they behave this way. They're only good if they came about by these certain circumstances. We know that children are a gift from the Lord. And like we just said before, every parent is a steward of their children. A steward of their children. 1 Corinthians 4.2 says, In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. What is a steward? A steward it means that we have God-given responsibility with accountability. So we are not owners, right? They are our children, but they've been given to us by the Lord. They belong to God. We have a God-given responsibility with accountability. That means we're going to be called to task with how we handled the things that God has given us, and in particular, the children that God has given us. We are stewards of the children that God has given us. Uh, You'll see that in your outline there is uh, a Ted Tripp quote that says, uh, you exercise authority as God's agent. You may not direct your children for your own agenda or convenience. You must direct your children on God's behalf for their good. Because each parent is under the headship of Christ as our creator, as our redeemer, and as our king. No, you can write this in your margin or not. This is just something I wanted to tell you. There is no human authority That is ultimate. No human authority is ultimate. All authority comes under the headship of King Jesus. There is no human authority that is ultimate. There is no head of state that is ultimate. There is no head of a marriage that is ultimate. There is no parent that is ultimate. There is no boss that is ultimate. It all comes underneath the sovereign rule of King Jesus. Each parent is under the headship of Christ as our creator, our redeemer, and our king. And that's important for us to remember. It's important for us to remember that the authority that we have, the authority that we have, the responsibility that we've been given, all comes under the headship of Jesus Christ, that we are not ultimate. And that's something that I use in counseling a lot. I use it in counseling when I'm speaking to uh, a wife who is upset with her husband for whatever reason, abuse of authority, abdication of authority, no authority here is ultimate. Ultimately, every authority reports to King Jesus. We all fall under the headship of Jesus Christ. It's something that's important to remember. It's important to remember during difficult election cycles. It's important to remember during difficult times in our life. Every authority on God's green earth reports to God 
himself. Parents are not the final authority of their children. Parenting, though, is a great opportunity for discipleship. A great opportunity for discipleship. Uh, If you look in Judges chapter 2, verses 6 through 15, uh, you see the first generation of Israelites who grew up in the promised land knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. That's an example that we can remember uh, out of the book of Judges. Uh, And it says from Paul Tripp's book, The Age of Opportunity, the first generation of children who grew up in Palestine did not know who God was and did not know about the amazing thing he did to deliver and sustain his people. The fundamental failure was a failure of the family to do what God intended it to do. Parenting is a great opportunity for discipleship. And that is our primary goal as parents, is to please, watch this, to please the Lord in the discipling of our children. Our goal as parents is to please the Lord in the discipling of our children. And you'll notice that the definition that I just gave you for our goal has everything to do with the process of parenting and nothing to do with the product. Our goal in parenting is to please the Lord in the discipling of our children. We seek to please God through the process and we leave the product to him. Friends, there are a lot of great parents that produce great kids by God's grace. There are a lot of great parents and their kids are not so great. There are a lot of not so great parents that have phenomenal, God-loving, Bible-reading, Jesus-fearing children. We plant seeds and God causes the increase. In everything in life, when it comes to the spiritual growth and spiritual development of people, it is never up to me entirely as a pastor, as a dad, as a husband, as a friend, as a member or a leader of my small group. It's not up to me entirely. God, God, I hope God will use me, but it's not up to me entirely to bring about fruit in people's lives. And it's the same with our children. So we need to remember that our goal is to please God in the process of parenting and leave the product to him. How many times that's so difficult for me to remember as a dad? It preaches real well. But then I have those four kids and all of a sudden I become Peter product-centered LaRufa. Because I do have a goal. And I do have hopes, and I do have dreams for them, and I do hope that they grow to love and fear and cherish the Lord all their days. And quite frankly, I want them to be, I'd love them to be happy. I like seeing them with joy, and I'd love to see them successful in whatever the Lord calls them to do. And I'd love to see them serving other people, and I'd love to see them understanding the things of God and then telling other people about them. I'd love all of those things. And that's not a bad thing. I should pray to that end. I should act to that end. I should raise them to that end. But I need to just do so knowing that the product, the end result, is up to the Lord. And that keeps you on your knees. It keeps you on your knees when you realize that you are partaking in a process and the product is up to the Lord. Well, then I talk to the person who's in charge of that product like a whole lot. Because I want him to raise up a product in my kids that will bring him glory and honor forever and ever. So parents face common struggles, and we're going to talk about uh, two of them today in this particular session. Having what we're going to call a parent-centered home, or having a child-centered home. So just like so many things in life, 
We're trying to hit the biblical middle. We don't want parent-centered, and we don't want child-centered. So let's take some time and talk about uh, what that might be, defining a parent-centered home. You're going to see several quotes throughout your outline from uh, Paul Tripp's Age of Opportunity. And I could not recommend that book to you any, any highly or any more, any more extravagantly or any more obviously to you right here, right now. Age of Opportunity is a wonderful, wonderful book. Now, it's not just a wonderful book because it's going to give you a bunch of how-tos. In fact, if you read that book looking for how-tos, you're going to be left wanting. I've had many people read the book and say, I liked it, but it really wasn't that practical. This is not a practical book. The purpose of the book, I mean, there might be some practical things in there, but it's not going to be five steps to this and an acronym for that and six steps to that and three steps for this. It's not that kind of a book. That kind of a book that Paul Tripp wrote in Age of Opportunity is the kind to change me as a dad and for me to see the opportunity that I have as a parent and for me to not see it as a, and particularly an opportunity that I have as parenting like middle school and high school students in particular. But it's for everyone, but I think a lot of what he says in there, I read it years and years ago, and I'm applying a lot of it, back then hopefully, but especially now, as uh, I have a son who's about to turn 13, so he's in that middle school, high school age, and there's a lot of things that I need to uh, remember and call back to mind, namely that God is in control at all times, and that I can do this. Tell Tell me I can do this by God's help, so you can do it. I need that reminder because oftentimes I feel like I just cannot. And if you've been parenting for any length of time, you know the feeling as well. And even if you haven't been parenting, you've done something and there's some, there's some task that God has called you to that you think, who, like the Apostle Paul, who is sufficient for these things? I'm, I'm unable, I'm inept, I'm weak. But God gives us his strength. His strength is made perfect in our what? In our what? And our weakness. So if we're feeling weak as parents, if our counselees are feeling uh, hopeless and helpless, it's just the right opportunity for them to look to God and get the help that they need because his strength is not made perfect in my strength. His strength is not made perfect in my ability. His strength is made perfect in weakness. So let's look at, uh, we're going to define a parent-centered home and look at some elements of a parent-centered home, some major areas. Um, Pride. This is when the parent is always right or is very slow to admit their own fault and seek forgiveness. Parent-centered homes are always afraid to admit error. Afraid to admit error. Years ago, we preached a parenting series. It's still online, graceky.org. One of the sermons that I preached, I, I, I preached that parents should admit that they are wrong to their kids when they're wrong. Perish the thought. Parents, when they are wrong, should look to their kids when they're wrong and say, I was wrong. I had some parents come up to me with great concern that that would affect their parents, their kids' view of them. That would affect their kids' view of them. That might affect their authority. That might hinder them when they're trying to teach them or lead them in other ways. I told them, I said, I think your kids probably already know that you're wrong, right? Like you're not, you're not, if you've raised them to know right and wrong, when you flew off the handle, they know when I flew off the handle, I was wrong. When mom flies off the handle, she's probably wrong. You're not telling them things that they don't know. You are admitting something to them and showing to them that you are humble. But a parent sent at home says, no, no, it's all about us. It's all about us. Too proud to admit their own fault. Too proud to seek forgiveness. And that doesn't model the gospel for our children. Some of the most helpful parenting 
times that I've had with my kids has not been when I've been so right, but it's been when I've been so wrong. And I'm able to get down on one knee and look at them and say, Daddy was wrong. And when I said that, and when I did that, Daddy was wrong. Yes, Daddy was upset, but Daddy was wrong. Yes, you were wrong in what you did, but that didn't justify what Dad did. And to ask for their forgiveness. That's what I want my kids doing. And that's what I want my kids understanding that Jesus Christ has done for me. Pride marks a parent-centered home. Proverbs 16 and verse 25, there's a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. So when we realize that the Bible calls us to seek forgiveness from one another, we want to model that for our kids. When we go, I know the Bible says, but, that's all, just stop, right? That's always a bad sentence. I know scripture says, but this is different. I know the Bible says I should do this, but I'm a parent. I know the Bible says that I should ask forgiveness, but what will my kid think? But this is a different situation. Whenever we say, I know the Bible says, but, you have to realize that's a huge affront and a huge attack on the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture. When we say, I know the Bible says, but, it means the Bible is almost enough for me, but it didn't speak to this particular situation. God didn't, have, God didn't realize that I'm Peter LaRufa, right? God didn't realize that I've been given a, a, a son in Silas, or he didn't realize the kind of, yeah, but I'm in ministry, or yeah, but we've had a rough day, but yeah, but, the yeah, buts, eh-eh. God's word is true. Right? Let God be true and every man a liar. So in the times when I think, yeah, I know God's word says you, but I don't think it really applies. I don't think it really applies to me. Just stop. I need to just bow the knee and do what God says to do. There might be a way that seems right to me, but that proverb always stands out to me. There's a way that can seem so right. Right? That's Proverbs are general axioms. So this says there's a way that seems right to a man. And I love it. It doesn't say, but the end is like not as good. There's a way that seems right, but the end is probably wrong. It's like this can seem so right, but the end is death. Like that's what God wants me to see. That it can seem really right, but the end could actually kill me. So in general, that which seems right may actually not just be a little off, but maybe way, way wrong. Jim Neuheiser and Elise Fitzpatrick wrote a book called You Never Stop Being a Parent. And there's a quote that says, Pride blinds us not only to our own sin, but also to the true struggles of others. And just as you wouldn't entrust your eyes into the hands of a blind ophthalmologist, regardless of his experience, our kids won't feel comfortable trusting our correction of them when we're blind to our own sin, inconsistencies, and failures. Another element of a parent-centered home, control. Control, expecting children to obey them, but the parent might disobey God's authority. Expecting children to obey the first time, every time, putting a controlling, having this controlling, domineering influence over our kids because we demand first-time obedience. And I know my child will do this. I've seen the other kids do this. My child's going to do different. We're going to do differently. I'm going to teach them differently. And that's fine. It's good to teach them differently. The question is, how do you react when they don't do that? I want to teach my kids differently. There's lots of examples of kids that I don't want my kids to to be like or worldviews I don't want them to have. So I want to teach them differently, and that's good. What happens when they act like those other kids or seem to be acting like they have a different value system? How do I respond? Well, if my eyes pop out of my skull and I act as if I have been wronged, then all of a sudden I start to personalize that which was never personal 
It's probably reached a level in my heart that it shouldn't be. It's probably what we call an idol. Because one of the ways that we can find out if it's an idol is we can answer uh, two questions. Am I willing to sin to get it? And how am I going to react when it's taken away? Am I willing to sin to get it? And how am I going to react when it's taken away? So it's like, yeah, no, I'm just trying to raise, just trying to raise obedient children. And I just want them to do right. And I don't think it really has a, a grip on my life. And then all of a sudden they disobey and we get the, <sighs> this face, the, <sighs> how could they? <sighs> I'm shocked. Because all of a sudden I have no memory of myself as a child. That happens. Sometimes I'll even catch myself. I'll tell Sarah, it's like, we never did this as a kid. We didn't, leave our, we didn't leave our stuff all over the yard like that. And Sarah goes, you didn't have a yard, which is true. I grew up in an apartment. So, but, but, you know, no, I don't think we did this. I think it was different. I think it was that. And sometimes Sarah will text my mom and ask. It's not a good scene. But, but, but we, all of a sudden, we have this control, this control. No, 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 no. My kids are going to do this. How am I going to respond if they don't? expecting children to obey. I want them to obey, but do I set it up in such a way that there's a control, there's a controlling thing going on? This is a big one for me. Um, I don't know if I come, I don't know, yeah, you don't really, some of you know me really well, some of you don't. I don't know if I strike you as a real loose laid back kind of guy. And you're giggling, so I'm, I'm not. And uh, when things, when I have a plan and a desire for my kids, and especially when I think I know what's best for them, and most times I do, what with me being like an adult and all, when it doesn't go that way, um, how I respond reveals a lot about my heart. And it's not always like how I respond because I fly off the handle and put a hole in the wall. Don't, don't, that's not what I'm saying. It's just how wronged I personally feel, how I personalize that which is not personal, reveals the idol within my heart of control. And it's something we have to be careful, be careful with as parents. Hypocrisy, expecting children to behave one way, but justifying one's own behavior. This is do as I say, not as I. Right. So hypocrisy, when, when my kids hear me telling them to do something, but they don't see the same thing in my life. Um, I can make them obey. You can make your kids obey. You can make kids do what you want them to do, even if you don't do it. And they will obey you every time you're looking. Every time you're looking. I'm going to be looking at my kids for a real, real, real short time in their life. I don't want my kids to obey because dad is there. I don't want my kids to obey because they're afraid of an ultimatum. I want my kids to obey because they understand that it's right and good. And if I want them to fear one person or to please one person, who do I want that to be? Who? God. Hypocrisy. Expecting children to behave one way and it may not be the same way that you uh, behave. Maybe I'm, uh, I'm so busy, I'm neglecting to get any time with my children or neglecting to get time with each child. And this is something that I, I try my best to do. I always feel like I'm falling short with one of them, but uh, I try my best to spend time with each kid. And, I, and I'm, 
I try to make it really even, and it just doesn't work that way. There's not much uh, that is super orderly and nice, at least in our home with four kids. It's just a home with four kids, and we're not carving our initials on the wall, but still, it's not always going to be like, okay, well, I spent 6.7 minutes with this kid. Like, I just want to be giving enough of myself to my kids. I don't want it to be so parent-centered that, you know what, I'll get to you when I get to you. My priorities are first. My schedule's first. My ministry's first. Probably the worst thing I can give my kids in the way of being a father is the fact that all they ever see is the back of my head as I head out to a meeting at church. A parent-centered home says, the parents rule, the kids drool. The parents' schedule is the most important thing. The parents' priorities, what they want to do, and the kids, well, they'll just have to catch up. And they'll be fine. Busy. Always busy. Inconsistency. Enforcing rules and corrections one day, uh, but not the next. So why is that an example of being parent-centered? Well, that's because I will enforce uh, rules and teach principles and make sure that I'm consistent when I really want to be consistent. And then at times when it's just inconvenient, I won't be. Who, who does that have at the center of their mind? Me, the parent. It's parent-centered. Well, yeah, this is a really, th- really important thing in our home. But then the next day, when, it's, when I'm just too tired or I can't know more or whatever, it's not that big of a deal. Parent-centered. It's all about me. It's all about what I want. Inconsistency. Proverbs 20, verse 6, most men will proclaim everyone his own goodness, but a faithful man who can find. Self-centered, all decisions and choices uh, are totally based on the parent and his or her wishes. Impatient, the idea that I want my child to do whatever right now. I react that way. The fact that when I call them, they don't jump. The fact that when I ask them to do something, it doesn't happen immediately. Now listen to me. I'm all for training your kids to do things the first time, the right way, the happy way. I think those are good things to do. But it becomes parent-centered when it's the end of the world and the sky is falling and my whole day is ruined because I had to call my kid three times. And it's totally personal, and why is God judging me, right? It's not. It's it's just, it's a child. Parent-centered homes respond like it's the absolute end of the world, and they personalize that which is not personal when their children don't do what they want. And being impatient with our children can be a sign that we are, in fact, parent-centered. Nagging will always damage a relationship. This is from your... From your outline. Nagging will always damage a relationship because it is not the fruit of humble respect. It is the fruit of pride and impatience. Uh, expectations. The child has to be, do, and become everything the parent expects of them. And this uh, happens more times than not. I know certain parents who put a ton of pressure on their kids in a certain area of their life. To go to a certain type of school, to get a certain type of job, to get a certain level of degree. Um, um, to make a certain level of money, to succeed in sports, to whatever, to be a Christian. We cross a line from evangelism to coercion, right? We cross a line from discipleship to demanding that people love, you will love Jesus. I can't make my children love Jesus. Now, as for me and my house, like Joshua, we will serve the Lord. But I can't make somebody love somebody. 
just can't do that. But I set an expectation that we seek to obey the Lord. We seek to uh, please the Lord. We set our lives around the gospel, around the glory of God. But the expectation that the child has to be like mom and dad means we put ourselves at the center of their lives and not God. Idolatry, parents making the desires of their heart more important than pleasing God. We remember Exodus chapter 20 and verse 3, which says, You shall have no other gods before me. So what are some possible idols of the heart for parents? Possible idols of the heart for parents. Well, here's some. Uh, comfort. Okay? This is, remember, we're still talking about what a parent-centered home might look like. Possible idol of the heart would be comfort. I will be comfortable. Uh, our home will look a certain way or feel a certain way. Uh, it will be this way. It will be this way all the time, and heads will roll if it is not. Comfort can be an idol. Um, respect. Now, you will respect me. My child will respect me. It's all these demands. It's not bad to have these desires. Is it bad to desire comfort? No. Is it bad to desire respect? No. Is it bad to even say there's a certain level of respect? This is what it's going to be. No. It's when my desire becomes my demand. When my desire becomes my demand. When that which I want and hold up before the Lord and say, Lord, this is what I really want. Please, Lord, I really want this. Can you please give it to me? Help me to do this in a certain way that would please you. I think it's a good thing and I really want this, please. But watch this. It's when I close my fist and shake it before the Lord. Whatever this is, whatever this desire might be, and say, you will give this to me. I will have this and heads will roll if I don't. I will have this good thing. It's a good and godly thing, and I'm going to have it. When my desire becomes my demand. Comfort, respect, appreciation. I've had times where like, I just don't feel like the kids appreciate this. And then one of us goes, they don't. That feeling's like dead on, right? They don't. They don't. They don't understand it. It's not a value system that they have. We, we want to teach them to appreciate that, but probably if I don't feel like my kids appreciate it. It's not like, no, they do. Yeah, no, that's, judges, ding, ding, ding. They, they don't. Well, they better appreciate it. They have to appreciate it. I work so hard. Parent-centered. Parent-centered. How about success? Okay, so there's some overlap here. Success, spiritual, educational, occupational, emotional, relational. My child will be married. My child will act this way. My child will dress this way. Um, Whatever we view as success, what's the win? If we're defining a win that is different from the Lord's, buckle up. It's not going to be an easy ride. Control. We spoke about this a little bit before. So how do you know when something is an idol of your heart? And we spoke about this. There's two questions that you can ask. How do you respond when you don't get what you want? And are you willing to sin in order to get what you want? How do you respond when you don't get what you want? And are you willing to sin in order to get what you want? So that is defining a parent-centered home. Now, here is a child-centered home. We're going to look at aspects of what a child-centered home um, might look like. So we're going from one ditch to another. From one ditch to another. And Lou Priolo has a book called The Heart of Anger, and there's a quote in your outline that says this. A child-centered home is one in which a child believes and is allowed to behave as though the entire household, parents, siblings, and even pets exist for one purpose, to please him. So we're going to talk about a child-centered home, and let's look at some elements of a child-centered home. No consequences. 
A child clearly sins, and parents just allow him to get away with it, right? No, there is no consequence, because it's all about little Johnny or all about little Susie. A child-centered home. Manipulation. A child reacts in anger or clams up or cries to get what he wants. And this is just okay. Um, selfishness. The child gets whatever he wants. It's all about the child. It's not others. So when he wants to, you know, you make something for dinner, but the child wants something else for dinner, we just, whoa, I guess little Johnny doesn't want chicken. Okay, we'll fire up the grill and we'll make him a hot dog. And it's all driven by what that kid wants in the moment at this very, very time. Uh, Demanding. The child insists that things be done his way and when he wants it. Priorities. The child becomes more important than a spouse. So we should probably camp out there. Oftentimes, a husband and wife put their marriage aside to focus on this needy, helpless child that they love so much that they're thankful as a gift from the Lord. They're glad that they've been blessed with him or her or them. And oftentimes what a husband and wife will do is instead of uh, focusing primarily on their relationship with the Lord and their relationship with each other, they put those relationships aside and they will focus on the child. Now, let's be compassionate. Talk with me and work with me here. Let's not act like we don't understand this. Why might we want to do that as parents? Why might parents want to do that? Why might they be tempted to do that? Why might that seem right? Talk to me. What's that? A baby, a child, an infant is helpless, right? They need help. Okay, what else? Cute? Yeah. The kid's just cuter than me, so my wife wants to spend more time with the kid. Okay, what else? It's easier. I might just ask you to elaborate on that. What do you mean it's easier? Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's easier, particularly for those of us who are listening in the Spanish track, it's easier, it's therapeutic, um, engaging in a um, conversation with my wife, um, maybe even a, a, an easy conversation or a resolving conflict. That just takes a lot of effort, and sometimes it's just easier for me to just get on the floor and roll around with the kid or just to throw a ball around. It's just easier. Very good. Yes, in the back. Very good. So there might be something lacking in a husband-wife relationship, and the child comes along as a very convenient distraction. Oh, I would work this out, but what with all the kids that we have and how we need to invest in them, we can't really focus on us, so maybe that'll just get better on its own. Um, And they focus on this. Very good. Very good. In the back. Yes. Yeah. So that's, yeah, sometimes it's been modeled or taught that it's the Christian thing, the godly thing, the selfless thing to put ourselves aside and to focus on our, focus on our kids. That's very, very good. Nicole, your hand was up. Let's take about two more. Go ahead. 
Okay, so the knowledge that parenting is temporary and the marriage is going to continue to be there, um, while some would say, and I would say, focus and invest on the thing that's always going to be there, perhaps somebody could say, I got plenty of time. That's always going to be there. I have a limited amount of time with these kids. That's a very, very good thought. Uh, One or two more. Yes, these two, and then we'll, we'll move on. Gotcha. I think I gotcha. I don't think I can repeat that as well as you. Can you say that again? Ah, okay. So um, the children are looking to me primarily for all of their needs. So it can feel like a very selfish thing for me to be also looking after my needs or my spouse's needs or our marriage's needs. So the selfless thing seems to be for me to look after my child's needs because they're so needy. Is that correct? <laughs> you say yes, but Taylor's sitting in front of you and she's going, no, that's not, that's not what she said. Ah, so I thrive off of them looking to me, so I'm doing it, yes, okay, I see what you're saying, so I receive, I feel very needed, I feel very wanted, so it becomes selfish because I like the fact that they need me so much as a parent, right? I'm really asking Taylor, right? Good, okay. (laughs) Yes, one more. Low ball, right over the plate. Go ahead, no, go ahead. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sometimes children are very affectionate. There's more instant gratification and less. Wow, this is really good. It's like you guys should be counselors. This is, it's more instant gratification when I come home and my child and uh, Silas, he goes, <laughs> when I come home, Silas goes, Daddy! And he runs. It's been a long time since Sarah. <laughs> Peter! Just runs at me. Right? So it's, it's, it, there, it, there's more instant gratification. It's like, oh, I missed you too. I missed you too. So great. Oh, yes, I am, I am home. Yes, I am home, son. No need to thank me. I live here as well. Right. Yes, it feels good to feel wanted, to feel missed. Yeah, very, very good. So lots of times, these are really, really, really good answers. Um, we can become child-centered and we, have, we rearrange our priorities when the child becomes more important than my marriage. Um, but in reality, one of the greatest gifts I can give my kids is a solid God-centered marriage. One of the greatest gifts and one of the greatest things I can model for my kids and for them to see in my life is how much I love Sarah. Not how much we put each other aside and meet their needs. But we can become child-centered when our priorities are out of whack. Number six, responsibility. The child has no responsibilities. Parents do it all for the child. So no chores, nothing age-appropriate, nothing. They do nothing um, because it's all about the child and want the child to be happy. And that might, um, you know, it, it just might bring the child down if they have to do something. Uh, communication. The child tells the parent what to do as if the child is equal or in charge. Um, and that just goes unchecked or uncorrected. Um, and it's just acceptable for the child to tell the parent what to do. Um, and 
uh, never offended. The parents do anything and everything they can do to not offend their child. Over-apologize for things that weren't wrong, but they see may have crossed their child. Or the child seems to be upset about something in life, and all of a sudden, just the world has to stop. We have to do everything we can to make sure little Johnny or little Susie is happy. This is uh, elements of a child-centered home. Um, Now, elements of a more severe parent-centered and or child-centered homes, okay? Um, Abusive situations. Um, this This is hard to talk about, but it's something that we have to look at that you have to realize that the ultimate end of some of these ditches can be really, really, really scary stuff, right? Allowing anger to get the best of us as we demand what we want. Um, I never, ever, ever, I'm just confessing to you right now, (laughs) never, I remember before we had Justin, I was like, shaken baby syndrome. Who would shake a baby? Why would you ever shake a baby? How could you ever shake a baby? Then we had a baby. And then the child would choose to cry uh, at all different hours, very inconsiderate, didn't realize we were trying to sleep, didn't realize it was dark out, would choose to cry at all hours of the night. Now, I've never, ever, ever once shaken my child. Confession, I understand how people can do that. Does that, does that make sense? I understand how if it's all about me, if I'm focused on myself and my things and my sleep and my schedule and my, my, me, 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 some really scary stuff can happen. Uh, abusive situations. Sometimes uh, in a step family issue um, as a result of divorce or, 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 or sexual involvement, perhaps fornication uh, prior to marriage, this can get priorities out of whack and we could be more focused on the child or more focused on ourselves. Um, again, these drug and or alcohol abuse by the child. It could be a result of something that happens as we're falling into one of these ditches. Um, it could even lead to children wanting to take and end uh, their own life. And uh, with what, I don't know if you've been keeping up in the news lately with uh, physician-assisted suicide and how that's running rampant across our country um, in different ways. And the latest thing is to even, um, to even allow it for teenagers, for adolescents. Would you, would you even be here if you, if you had the option to at one time when you, I mean, I, and I'm, I didn't wrestle with a ton of depression as a kid, but. There were times as a teenager when my hormones were like up and they were down and I was feeling this way and then I'm feeling this way. Can you imagine having an accessible option to end it all as an adolescent right at the, just right at your doctor's office? It's really, really sad. Anyway, that's a little bit of a tangent. Um, sexual problems, legal violations by the parents. What we want to do is we want to have a common solution. So we have parents have common uh, issues, common problems, common ditches that we can fall into, but we have a common solution, and that is a characteristics of a God-centered home, okay? And Lou Priolo in The Heart of Anger says this about a God-centered home. The concept of a God-centered home is derived from the biblical principle that the purpose of every Christian is to glorify God. In contrast to a child-centered home, where pleasing and serving the child is the dominant theme, the God-centered home is one in which everyone is committed to pleasing and serving God. God's desires are exalted over everyone else's. Everyone in the family may be expected to sacrifice personal pleasure if God's will requires it. And this philosophy teaches children that to serve rather than to be served, to honor rather than to be honored, 
to give, be loving, rather than take or be selfish. So let's look at elements of a God-centered home, okay? The first element is truth. So the source of truth is the inspired and sufficient word of God. 2 Timothy 3, 15 and 16, you've probably heard ad nauseum by now. Talking that, uh, but, but if you look at, actually you probably heard 16, I don't know if you've heard from 15, that Timothy was told by Paul that you've heard these things from your childhood. You've known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. And in the next verse, 16, says, All Scripture is inspired. It is theopneustos. That's the Greek word. It is God-breathed and given to us by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Uh, Oftentimes, our kids hear, what does the Bible say? Or let's go to the Bible. Let's Let's see what God's Word has to say about that. We want them to know that it's not us, but that it's God's Word, And we want them to know that really, if you, hopefully, the principles that we've laid out in our home, hopefully they honor the Lord and they're centered on, on his word and on the biblical principles that we find throughout the Bible. And we also want them to know that if they have a beef with them, that it's not really just here that the issue is. It's really there's a deeper issue, and the issue is between them and God. Uh, did we talk about Cain and Abel in a previous session uh, will you quickly turn to Genesis chapter 4? Genesis chapter 4. In Genesis chapter 4, um, we have a recording of the first what? Yeah, the first, the first murder. It took four chapters. Four chapters. You realize that just about every sin, and particularly some of the most grossest sexual sins, occur within the first 19 chapters of God's Word. Didn't take long. Right? Two chapters of awesomeness. And then 17 chapters just down the hill. Genesis chapter 4, I want you to see something that's just a good thing for you to realize as you consider counseling and particularly in parenting. Beginning in verse 1, I'm going to read through this pretty quickly. Now Adam knew his Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a male with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be expected? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Now, I'm going to stop right there. Here's what I want to know. Who was Cain angry at? Who was Cain angry at? Yeah, it appears as if he's angry at Abel. What with him killing him and all, right? But really, he had a conversation with God. His countenance fell. He can't kill God. He can kill Abel. So he kills Abel. He has a problem with God. He takes it out with his brother. Oftentimes in parenting, 
I want my kids to realize the issues you have here are not solely just here. They reflect a heart issue with God. When you're having trouble understanding, uh, no, not understanding. When you're having trouble submitting to or you want to rebel against or you're angry at a certain principle, it's really not just your mom or just your dad you're upset with. Because we're doing this based on God's word. So I want my kids to understand that I don't write the mail, I just deliver it. So when, when you have an issue with something that is in the word of God, it's not mom and dad, it's deeper than that. We need to talk about this, not because we're upset, but because this is an issue between you and God. You and God. Uh, Hebrews 4 and verse 12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both the joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Elements of a, of a, no, not child, goodness. Elements of a God-centered home. Uh, worship, loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving others. That kids would understand worship is not something that's done for an hour and a half every Sunday, but then for the other uh, 166 and a half hours of the week, it's not worship. It's just a thing, right? It's just a, a thing we do. It's a thing we do in the morning, or it's a thing we do. Then we're worship, but we don't have, they, we want them to see worship as a lifestyle, that we do all to the glory and honor of God. Not perfectly, not perfectly at all, but that is our goal. It's a God-centered home, not a child-centered or a parent-centered home. Um, Matthew 22, verses 37 through 39. And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. This is the great and foremost commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Glorifying God. Glorifying God. We want to do this because we want to glorify God. So it's not what will, what will dad think or is that going to make mom happy. There's an element of good there, right? It's selfless. It's not all about you. Consider your mother. But ultimately, it's we want to please the Lord. I want my kids looking up, not looking out. I want them wondering if what they're doing will please the Lord. I want them to know that that's normal for us as Christians to want to please the Lord in all that we do. Matthew 3 and verse 17, And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. 1 Corinthians ten thirty one. Whether then you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I want them to understand that we want to be like Jesus. Philippians 2 and verse 5, Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. Uh, Colossians 1 and verse 16, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. The gospel, the gospel, which 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 3 says is of what? First importance, that it's primary, it's primary in all things, not just for my children to be saved, but also for me as a parent to have the strength and the ability, and for you as a parent, as a counselor, as a Christian, to have the strength and the ability to press on through the trials and tribulations that we face in life. The gospel needs to be at the center. John 3.16, Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Uh, there was an article recently published in, I think it's the Telegraph. It's a British uh, 
yeah, whatever, uh, it was published in the Telegraph that most, most family, uh, a certain number of families that label themselves as religious, okay, so I don't know what that is, just religious, they're choosing, uh, a high number of families, I don't remember the exact percentage, are choosing to not pass down their religious beliefs to their children because they are concerned that they're going to be marginalized in school. But Paul says, for I am what? I am not ashamed of the gospel. Be biblical counselors. Let's say somebody were to... Now, there's a whole host of issues there, right? Um, But think about it. Where is that person's mind centered when they're doing that with their kids? Okay, let's, let's, not even, let's not even talk about whether or not they're saved or unsaved. or I mean, I, we're not going to even go there. But be biblical counselors and tell me, um, what are they centered on? They're surely not centered on God. What are they centered on? What are some idols? If someone says, I don't think I want to teach my kids to be religious because they're going to be marginalized in school. What are some idols of the heart that we might want to look for there? What's that? Popularity, success, comfort, right? Societal acceptance. Uh, what else? Maybe personal pride, right? I don't have a. I don't. I don't want people thinking of my kid being weird. But we want our kids to have no shame of the gospel. Paul had no shame. He knew it was the power of God. He knew it was the power. Of God for salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. God-centered home. We talk about the heart uh, a lot, dealing with issues of the heart, not simply outward behavior. So it's not what you did was just bad, but what, what is going on in our hearts when we want to do that? Um, Matthew 15 and 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, <clears throat> excuse me, Fornications, thefts, false witness, and slanders. Um, you see a, a Ted Tripp um, quote there that says, Your child's heart determines how he responds to your parenting. Now, the results of a God centered home, this is, remember what I said, we're not product centered, we're process centered. But these are the results that we're hoping for. This is what we're shooting for if we want to have a God centered home. We want our counselees to have a God centered home. We want people to have a right view of self a right view of others, a right view of self, a right view of others, to love them and to serve them, and ultimately, a right view of God. If I'm focusing on the Lord, and He is the center, the center of our home, we want our children to have a right view of self and a right view of others. I want, as a parent, to have a right view of myself and my role as a parent and a right view of others um, my children, a right view of those who impact their lives, and a right view of people who influence them. So you'll see uh, there's some recommended resources um, that are listed there that you can make your way to the resource center here. You can look for online, and you can try to find them. Uh, Paul Tripp also has a new book on parenting that actually just came out that is excellent. Let me just say one thing about parenting books. Um, parenting books, it has been my experience... That if you read a parenting book and you are not um, thoroughly saturated and secure in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the result of reading a parenting book is unbelievable guilt. How many of you have a, a general idea of what I might be talking about? If you read a parenting book 
but you are not solely committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ, both personally as a Christian and believing that it really is the power of God unto salvation for all who would believe that the gospel can reach your children, you will read a parenting book, you will read a parenting resource, feel guilty for not doing the things that they said that you should do, you'll try to apply things, you'll be overwhelmed, all of a sudden you'll fall into the weight of condemnation and legalism and behaviorism, and you'll be looking back on would've, could've, should'ves and trying to make yourself catch up. I'm telling you, parenting resources are super, super, super helpful. But if you're looking to them for hope and help, when you can only look to Jesus Christ for hope and help, you will be left not only wanting, you'll be left paralyzed. So as you suggest parenting resources for your counselees or for yourself, start out with the word of God and who you are in Christ. I can't tell you how many times I have been involved in a situation of counseling and when parents come to me and they're wanting to look for resources, I suggested them Living the Cross-Centered Life by C.J. Mahaney. That book talks about parenting like not at all, but it gets them. And they're like, what do you, no, 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 I, maybe you don't understand. We're here to talk about parenting. It's like, yeah, I know, but we need to start here. We need to start here because if I give you parenting resources and this, you're just going to look at it as a how-to, I want to make sure that you are trusting in the power of the gospel to reach your kids and not in your next best 10-step program acronym thing that you're going to apply in your life, which might be good, but then when it falls, where are you going to look? Because nothing's going to work perfectly, but the gospel will. And I need to be secure in my standing as a parent, as a dad, before the Lord, realizing that I'm not going to be accepted before the Lord because I'm a perfect dad, because I can't be a perfect dad. But I'm accepted in the beloved because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross for a sinner like me. And that's what I want my kids to understand. We start there and we build off of everything. We start with the gospel, and then we, anything that we're going to teach, we build through a cross-centered lens. So before you, I'm not, I'm not saying stay away from the resources. I'm just saying let's make sure that we have those things in the right order as we both give counsel and look for counsel for ourselves when it comes to parenting.